Welcome to Trashy Divorces, friends, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy. Thank you for joining us for today's tale of marital misadventure, and this one is kind of a special bonus today. You got that right. As you and I are fighting with our allergies today, we are pulling a bonus straight out of Patreon, Golden Hollywood couple style. Breaking up is hard to do. Today it is Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. They are the classic couple from the era, and wow, does it go badly. <laughs> this one was a real ride. Patreon content does get a little looser, increased spider webs. It gives us a chance to go off script sometimes and mm-hmm. uh, really enjoy a story. Honestly, there are a lot of spider webs in this one. And this episode is a treasure trove of all kinds of trashy divorces alums. This scene is my bliss. Yes, it is. And hey, friends, something really good is happening over there on Patreon. If you've ever thought about showing a little support for trashy divorces and also gaining a bit more trash candy in your life, including early and ad-free episodes, Monday's dumpster dives, and bonus divorces along these lines, check it out now with a seven-day free trial over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Super cool that Patreon opened up that feature. Seven-day free trial. You can check out what's there, find anything that might tickle your fancy, We may, here at TDHQ, just have something to fill your summertime hours and your trashy hearts. Again, patreon.com slash trashy divorces will get you to that page and all of the details for signing up for a week free. And as always, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, every single one of you. We cannot say enough wonderful things about our Patreon community, and we are so, so grateful for you. And grateful to you for tuning in to listen to our Tales of Trash Candy. Alicia, how does it go down for Janet and Tony? Breaking up is so hard to do. Let's go, go, go. Hello, trashy friends, trash pandas. Welcome to your bonus divorce For May, from me, I'm really excited today to bring you the trashy divorce of the first golden couple of Hollywood in the 50s. I've been wanting to do this one for a while since you and I, Stacey, met the very white floofer puppy of Jamie Lee Curtis, their offspring in Charleston many moons ago. Yes, Jamie Lee Curtis was present. We just didn't notice her because we were so enthralled by the giant floof. It was a giant, sweet, sweet floof. And... We really missed our opportunity to meet Jamie Lee Curtis, although we have met... Who's the most famous person you've met? Jamie Lee Curtis's dog. Jamie Lee Curtis's dog, indeed. Okay, she was perfectly chuffed that we didn't even look at her, recognize her until she's walking away. Probably, I know, smirking at us like those idiots didn't even know who I was. Definitely caught the smirk, which was... Amazing. She she looked genuinely happy. She was amused by this entire thing playing out before her. Good lord, it was a good. It was a good day. My dog makes me invisible, says I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis. Kind of. Okay, so today my couple, Hollywood legends, the both of them, Jamie Lee Curtis's parents, Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. These two prolific actors, very public romance, and a marriage that lasts for twelve years, eleven, twelve years at least on the books. Okay. And a trashy divorce. This story really does have it all 1950s style. Their daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis, has been in the news of late. Been winning a lot of awards this year. Mm -hmm. 
Jamie Lee has a lot of thoughts about the disaster of a marriage between her parents. She's pretty candid about talking about it. I will pepper her opinions and commentary through this tale. And as we're here on Trashy Divorces, we already know how this one's going to end. Gets pretty icky. But here's a reminder here from aforementioned Jamie Lee Curtis, who mentions her parents at the February 2023 Screen Actors Guild Acceptance Award speech that she gives. Jamie Lee Curtis says, I'm wearing the wedding ring that my father gave my mother. They hated each other, by the way, by the end of it. But my sister Kelly and I were born from love. There was love at the time. Buckle up for some marital misadventure, darlings. Let's do this. God, I love this story. I mean, I don't. It's all terrible. I can't wait. All right. I'm going to open with this little delight of a bit from Gwen Davis writing in Vanity Fair, October 5th, 2010. This is after the passing of Tony Curtis. Gwen Davis knew both Curtises, has a lot of good behind-the-scenes info. But I think as spiderwebs go, this really sets the stage from Gwen Davis. There is a road that climbs off Benedict Canyon, winding up to the pinnacle of Beverly Hills, where once dwelt Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks in a time when movie star mansions became America's palaces and movie stars are substitute for royalty. Some 40 years later, the most beautiful couple the reigning king and queen of Hollywood were Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. As befitted royals, they lived up that same road in their very own castle, though it went by the title of mansion. Subsequent occupants of that same domain, holy cats, are y'all ready? Were to be Anthony Newley, a brilliant British performer on top of the songwriting ladder married at the time to Joan Collins. Mm. Later still, a tenant would be Sammy Davis Jr. After Harry Cohn, the fearsome head of Columbia Pictures, coerced him, this would be Sammy Davis, into marrying the African-American dancer Alta V's so the world would not find out that he, Sammy Davis Jr., was sleeping with Kim Novak. It's like trashy divorces history. I cannot believe we've never talked about these two as we've talked about everybody they connect with. Uh, Last sentence here from Gwen Davis. As various marriages collapsed, along with the stellar levels of various careers, the owners moved out and on. Isn't that the way they say it goes? Let's back up the bus and meet our bride. Janet Lee, who's not a Janet. That is her stage name. She's born Jeanette Helen Morrison, Hmm. July the 6th, 1927 in Merced, California. So she just got tired of people mispronouncing her name. She needed a stage name. Let me tell you her rise to fame. This is really kind of incredible. She's born in Merced, California, but little Jeanette is going to grow up in Stockton with a tough, hard knocks childhood. She's an only child. Jeanette has immigrant grandparents from Denmark, and Jeanette's mom and dad are struggling through the Great Depression, like so many other folks did. Jeanette's two years old, just a little over two years old. She's born July 1927, so she's two years, three months in October 1929 when the Depression hits. Dad has a factory gig. He'll supplement his income on the side. It's rough times for the family. But 
Jeanette is smart. She's super smart. She graduates high school. I've seen the age of 15 and I've seen the age of 16. Young. She just skips years out of her learning path. Skips a few grades. She's smart. She's lovely. And, oh, Jeanette, she's oh so lonely. And movies are the place that Jeanette goes to soothe herself. Dreams can come true. We see that a lot. That dreams can come true in Mm. the movies. And, I mean, it was so ubiquitous. That's where, that's what you did. You paid your nickel and you went into that escapism. Well, and it was a relatively new technology. I mean, it's, you know, like. Mm Mm-hmm. I and everyone I know spend a whole lot of time staring at screens in our hand. And I mean, this was the equivalent back then. So when Jeanette, it's about 1415, it's 1942, there is an early marriage. She's not even legal. John Carlisle is the groom's name. It's a secret marriage. It Hmm. lasts four months. (laughs) Jeanette's parents find out and they're like, what the hell have you done, Jeanette? Jeanette feels a lot of guilt about the secrecy and the lying to her parents. Jeanette and John Carlisle part, never see each other again. It is one of those like teenage mistakes no one mentions. Another marriage is going to come, though, for Jeanette in 1945, this time to band leader Stanley Reams. So at least Jeanette is 18 years old by this point and legal, not like the 14-year-old back there. But even Jeanette and Stanley, they're not meant to be. They divorce in 1948. So now here is Jeanette at the age of 20, 21, a two-time divorcee, her poor parents. Can you imagine? But we only talk about one. Mom and dad work still like salt of the earth. Mom and dad, hardworking folks, both are employed, both of them, at a ski lodge. Okay. They run the front desk. They clean the, like, they're, they, that's their job. They run the ski lodge. And so naturally, mom and dad running the ski lodge have a photo photograph of their beautiful daughter at the front desk. And this photo of their beautiful, smart, lovely, recently divorced, recently divorced daughter is spotted by a star one day, a star, a big star, Norma Shearer. Hmm. Whoa. Norma Shearer is colossally big in Hollywood. Legend. Norma. Ask mom and dad, hey, can I take this photo with me, please? I would like to get your kid a screen test. Okay, I'm glad she followed that up because that's a weird ask. (laughs) (coughs) Your kid could be a star. Right, let me show this around to my casting director friends or whatever. Let me see if we can get her down for a screen test. And sure enough, Janet Lee comes down, gets screen tested, and whoop, whoop. Janet's now a Hollywood star with many films under her belt and a budding career. So the King of First is in 1947, but just listen. By 1949, Janet Lee is in Little Women playing Meg with June Allison playing Joe with Elizabeth Taylor playing Amy. Oh my God. And Margaret O'Brien playing Beth. I mean, Janet's off to the races. Dreams really do come true. And Janet's divorced, and she's young, and she's popular, and her star is rising, and it's also Hollywood in the late 40s, and there are scads of men to choose from. But there is one particular pesky one. We've talked about him before. He of the jewelry trade. Oh, Howard Hughes. 
ever awkward party goer. Oh my god. There's a lot of drama that happens with Howard Hughes, this guy, man. All right, Janet Lee says that Howard Hughes gave me a royal headache. Howard Hughes really likes Janet. To where he wants, he has her in a movie that it takes Howard Hughes like 10 years to make. Even after Janet is married and had children, Howard's still calling her back to do scenes for this film thinking, I'm going to get with you. And Janet's like, you had never stood a chance in hell, Howard Hughes, of getting with me. So let me give you a little bit of scoop on this. There's one point, this is back in the early 40s, before she meets Tony Curtis. And Janet Lee's boyfriend is away. And Howard Hughes, like he does with every other woman, has Janet Lee tailed, sends investigators, right, to follow her up. And then comes very helpfully two weeks later, hey, Janet. I want to talk to you about something. And hands over the papers of his private detectives, Howard's private detectives, following Janet. But Howard Hughes comes in and says, I got these. Your boyfriend doesn't trust you. Here's a detailed account of everything that you've done. And your boyfriend, like, really doesn't trust you at all. He's he thinks the you're worst. Crazy. Yeah. There was this other time that Howard Hughes literally kidnapped her. He called like, hey, do you want to go on a sailing date? And this was his power move, right? Yeah. And she's like, yeah, I mean, I'm on a boat. I'll go on a boat. I love boats. And then Howard Hughes takes her to an airfield. Well, we're just going to fly to the ocean. You're at the ocean, dude. But we're just going to fly to the ocean. It's better than sitting in traffic. But they end up in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> no ocean there. No ocean. Janet Lee's like 21. And she said the thing that made her the maddest about Howard Hughes is just his manipulation. Just ask me out and be a normal dude. You don't need to do all these tricks. Like, call me on the phone and ask me out. And then just take me to where you say you're going to take me. Don't fly me to the damn Grand Canyon. Was it Debbie Reynolds? He was... She was living with her mother. He would call her mother to set up dates. And she thought he was the cat's meow. And then Debbie found out he was cheating. Possibly. I don't. He's got some. It's everybody. everyone. It's, it's he, everyone. He was after every starlet. Maybe that was Ava Hollywood. Gardner. Ava Gardner is who was he it? called to. Okay. Yeah. Ava Gardner. He pulls the same kind of nonsense he does with Janet Lee. All right. Howard is going to get ditched. He's never normal. But he will come back around long after Janet Lee's married for this dumb movie, Jet Pilot, that Janet starts shooting in 1949. The production goes for 18 months. This is apparently Howard Hughes' favorite film, Never Finished, because hmm. he just keeps calling back Janet Lee, who he's in love with. Sure. She's in Hollywood, living her best life, up star on the rise. She also goes from a brunette to a blonde. Oh. So Janet having a great time. Let's park her here for a second. And get to Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis is born Bernard Schwartz, <laughs> June the 3rd, 1925. Old Bernard is born in Manhattan to Hungarian Jewish immigrants. And I need to be honest here. If there's a childhood of trauma and sadness, Bernard qualifies. Like I think about poor Buster Keaton getting sewn up in... yeah. With handles on his out. Like, that's pr that's yeah. bad. Yeah. Bernard, 
bad childhood as well. He's a Depression-era kid. He's born in 1925. Bernard's father is a tailor, and the family will live at the back of the tailor shop. Bernard is a kid who speaks only Hungarian until he's six years old. They lead a very insular, inclusive life. Mom, dad, younger brother, all diagnosed in their lives with schizophrenia. Wow. When Bernard is eight, he and his brother go to an orphanage for a few months. His parents just simply can't afford to feed them. Also, his mother is a diagnosed schizophrenic. By the age of 12, Bernard's father, is terrible, is struck and killed by a passing motor car. Kind of a rough life. At this point, he's 12, right? So we're talking 1935, 36. Still in New York. So totally, terrible. totally old enough to go to work in a f- dangerous factory setting. Well, Bernard instead becomes kind of a delinquent. He's going to join a gang, but is helped along by a kindly neighbor in the neighborhood and sees, like, Bernard's a good kid. There's potential in this kid, and I don't want him to go down this path. He could go down this path, but... Let me, let me see if I can help him out. So this neighbor is going to get Bernard into a Boy Scout camp where he learns structure. He gets regular care, regular meals. There's a life lesson. How do we be resilient? How do I learn how to do things? He's committing to something more than a life of crime. As it does, by the time that Bernard is in high school, the acting bug bites. He's getting small roles in school plays. And like the kids of the day, he's going to see movies too. He's inspired by all these heroes. And then we get to the 1940s, World War II. Bernard enlists after Pearl Harbor is attacked like so many other young men do. Bernard will be in the Pacific Theater when VJ Day happens in September of 1945. Okay. So really kind of incredible here. Here comes Bernard back from the war. And I'm not sure if you've heard about this pretty cool thing that helped out a lot of soldiers called the GI Bill. Bernard is going to take his GI Bill. He's going to go to college at the City College of New York. But soon enough, he's going to move along to the new school in Greenwich Village. Spiderweb City, y'all, hold on. A lot of people that are now legends are studying at the new school in Greenwich Village with Bernard, like Harry Belafonte, wow. Elaine Stritch, Walter Matthau, hmm. soon to be husband of Carol Marcus, my mm-hmm. favorite girl, B. Arthur. Hmm. Uh, old Bernard's in good, good company. Another spiderweb here. It is David O. Selznick's niece. Her name is Joyce that will discover Bernard and get him out to Hollywood in 1948 at the age of 23 years old. David O. Selznick, he pops up all over the place. He sure does. Universal Pictures is going to definitely insist on a name change. Bernard Schwartz is not quite the name we're looking for to be the dreamy, dreamy guy. And Anthony Curtis is decided on. And hey... More good news. Now Tony Curtis is going to meet some new people. They're nobodies at the time, but they're going to be somebody soon. 
Let's add in Rock Hudson hmm. and Julie Andrews wow. and Piper Laurie. Hmm. But now Tony Curtis is a 23-year-old kid. He's into girls. He's into making money. At this point, there is an early dalliance with Marilyn Monroe. 1949. It's the first time around with Marilyn. Hold on to that. Okay. Sorry, Tony Curtis comes out with this dream, right? If I can make it here. But he says his biggest fear was returning back to New York City as a failure. He is not even predicting Tony isn't success for himself, saying, I was a million to one shot, the least likely to succeed. I wasn't low man on the totem pole. I was under the totem pole in a sewer tied to a sack. Okay. Like, nobody anticipates that Tony Curtis is about to be the next breakout star. Sure. But at that time, think about who else you've got playing in that field. Robert Wagner, RJ, you got a bunch of up-and-comers in that early 1950s period. James Dean, Montgomery Clift. Oh, God, it's all so good. Okay. Whoo. Tony's a contract player. He's really good looking. Let's get, let's get that kid in the movies. He's got a number of films that he does, just tall, small roles, tiny, tiny roles in 1949, 1950. But I want to remind everybody that 1950 is the age of the Bobby Soxers. It is the dawning of the age of screaming teenage girls. And now Tony Curtis is getting fan mail. He turns into a heartthrob. Every girl is mad in the screaming teenager girl way about Tony Curtis. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, Janet Lee living her best life. Now she's a blonde, trying to get Howard Hughes off her tail. And Janet Lee for the time period is, like, super sexy. Right, we're 1950, and she's beautiful, and she's blonde, but the thing about Janet Lee, she has a hottie-totty body. Like, I mean, she's always perfectly composed. She doesn't ever do anything sexy, but you know she is rocking. Sure. 
a good physical form. She's beautiful. She's nice. Like, Janet Lee's the package. Her career is taken off. Tony's career is hitting the stratosphere as well. What's going to happen? Tony and Janet meet in 1950 at an RKO publicity party, and they are done. Well, Tony's done. He's into Janet like, uh, I need it. I need it. I need it. I will never live without it. Janet has another boyfriend at the time, but Tony is so into her that Janet's like, all right, I guess I'll give you my number. Why limit yourself, Janet thinks. Let's see what all the fuss with Tony Curtis is about. Tony Curtis will remember in his autobiography, her face was exquisite. She had an incredible figure, and there was a sweetness about her that I found most appealing. It just devastated me to look at this woman. Janet recalls in her book, at one point, I was introduced to a devastatingly handsome young man, beautiful, really, with black, unruly hair, large, sensitive eyes, fringed by long, dark lashes, a full, sensuous mouth, and an irresistible personality. Seems like the full package. Right. Janet gives Tony her number, and, oh, God, Tony Curtis is such a dick. I'm sorry. Tony will soon call Janet, but he doesn't call her to ask her out. He calls her to test her. So Tony Curtis is known about town for his great Cary Grant impersonation. And so Tony calls Janet pretending to be Cary Grant. This is like Henry VIII. Yeah, You're not supposed to know I'm a... Okay, but Janet understands what goes on and... Carrie Grant is asking her out, and she's like, oh, Carrie, I can't go out with you. I already have a date with Tony Curtis. So she passes his dumb test. His dumb test. So now, Tony Curtis starts showing up on her filming sets. The public cannot get enough of these two. So we've heard in the 1950s, like, the hot couple is Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher. Mm-hmm. Nah, dude. Janet Lee and Tony Curtis do it five years before okay. Debbie and Eddie. They okay. are the poster on the wall of this golden Hollywood couple. They're the headline news in all the magazines. They are photographed. They are gossiped about. Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher marry in 55. Janet and Tony do it in 1951. Okay. <sighs> Tony Curtis says, our relationship was very hot, very physical in those early years. That was a major part of it, the actual touching and holding. We both needed each other physically, and we were a perfect match. Tony's lost over Janet Lee. The studio does not love this matchup. Hmm. Studio can't stand it. Studio hates every bit of it. And Tony Curtis is offered $30,000 by the studio to marry Piper Laurie instead. Because Tony Curtis had just starred with Piper Laurie. And Piper Laurie doesn't want to marry right, him. And right. Tony Curtis thinks she's unpleasant. And he's like, no, nah, dude, I'm not going to do it. So Tony Curtis goes to his best friend, petty, petty man himself, Jerry Lewis. Ah. And Tony's like, Jerry, what do I do? And Jerry Lewis is like, hey, Tones, marrying that Janet Lee girl is career suicide for you. Why would you even think about marrying her? It's the dumbest thing you could ever do. So naturally, Tony Curtis and Janet Lee elope to Greenwich, Connecticut, 
on June the 4th, 1951, their wedding day. As one should. Jerry Lewis is the best man. He does show up. He's the best man at the ceremony, but he shows up an hour late. So, good job, Jerry. Yeah. Oh, our young newlyweds, they move into the same building, into an apartment in the same building with the very young, beautiful, violet-eyed herself, Elizabeth Taylor, who was just off her first marriage to Conrad Hilton. Mm. Elizabeth and Conrad started, they got married May 1950. They're divorced by January 1951. This happens, Elizabeth living in the building with them before marriage two to Michael Wilding for Elizabeth Taylor, which will happen in early 1952. Nothing's linear. Everything is connected. Can you imagine I'm Janet Lee and I need to go to Elizabeth Taylor's house to borrow an egg? Yeah, knock on her door like, cup of sugar? Hey, Liz. Actually, no, you wouldn't call her that. Hey, Elizabeth, can I get some uh, breadcrumbs? Anyway. Also booze? I understand you have a lot of booze. That is how Janet and Tony get together, and it was good for a little bit of time, proving Jerry Lewis, Petty Petty Crocker, and all the naysayers at the studio wrong. Janet Lee and Tony Curtis scoot through the early 1950s like the movie stars they are. They end up doing five films together. The first, 1953, called Houdini. 1954 follows with the Black Shield of Fallworth. We have the Vikings in 1958, the perfect furlough in 1959, and who was that lady in 1960? In addition, Janet and Tony in this 1950s decade will also have two daughters, Kelly and Jamie Lee. Jamie Lee Curtis in 2022, this is January 22, writes about her parents She posts a black and white photo of Janet and Tony from the early days and Jamie Lee Curtis will write, Once in a while, when their images find me unexpectedly, I'm caught by not only their extreme beauty, but by their deep love and ambition. As the product of 13 divorces in my immediate family, I have often struggled with the idea of love. What happens to it? There are only a couple of reminders to me that I was born from love and not resentment, competition, jealousy, and rancor, which are the cornerstones of any unpleasant divorce. I also forget that they were famous and loved worldwide. This marriage was a shit show. All of that is true. Jamie Lee was raised in a household. Resentment, competition, jealousy, rancor, all those things are true. But Janet and Tony have two young daughters. Their careers are hot. Although by the time Kelly comes in, 1956, perhaps all of that hot and heavy ardor from the early days has cooled a bit. Tony Curtis recalls in his memoir from this time, We settled into a functional but unromantic marriage. That kind of life was less unusual in Hollywood than you might think. Probably true. Whatever's happening, the two are making it happen, but there are cracks in the marriage, and the thing I need you to know is that Tony Curtis has an enormous ego. Huge. He does embarrassing things around her. Hmm. Like breaking glasses in front of Ethel Merman, 
very similar like Scott Fitzgerald, where Zelda would have to go apologize for Scott's bad behavior. That's Janet with Tony Curtis. Janet's just trying to survive. Just let's work it out. Let's make it work. Which intersects in a particular interesting timeline here with the movie Some Like It Hot. Tony Curtis, Marilyn Monroe. Jamie Lee Curtis says that she thinks her mom, Janet Lee, got pregnant with her to save the marriage as some kind of last ditch attempt because Tony Curtis was filming Some Like It Hot in 1958 with Marilyn Monroe, filmed then, released in March 1959. Jamie Lee Curtis is born November 22nd, 1958. Makes so sense, the yeah. Timing in that comes around. So a little bit of a spider web here for you. Some like it hot was filmed at the hotel del at the hotel door at the hotel del Coronado. If you're following Dun and Dun, you know about the Spreckles family connection over there. Not the big deal. The big deal here during the filming of Some Like It Hot is perhaps Tony Curtis is sleeping with Marilyn Monroe. And maybe That miscarriage that Marilyn suffers during that time, the baby she does not have, Tony Curtis believes it's his child. So let's talk about this. So it is while filming Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot in 1958 that Tony Curtis does make an infamous remark to the press. They ask him, what is shooting a love scene like with co-star Marilyn Monroe? And Tony Curtis responds, it's like kissing Hitler. What? I think he said that to throw everybody off the scent. Yeah, that's just a terrible attempt. I mean, that's It's bad. Like kissing Hitler, quote unquote. But in a new memoir that had come out, Tony Curtis alleges that the two actors were actually lovers at the time and their affair resulted in Monroe's pregnancy, although she later suffered a miscarriage. In the making of Some Like It Hot, Curtis, who was then 84 when it was made, alleges that he and Marilyn, who enjoyed a brief relationship in 1949, grew close again while on the set of Some Like It Hot. What I experienced with her was unforgettable, Tony Curtis says. Sounds like you do that with every girl, Tony Curtis, but alas. Both were married at the time, Tony Curtis to Janet Lee. Marilyn Monroe at the time was married to playwright Arthur Miller. Curtis says, It was when they were admitting their affair to Arthur Miller that Marilyn Monroe broke the news of her pregnancy. Tony Curtis writes, I was stunned. I just stood there. The room was so silent that I could hear the tires screeching on Santa Monica Boulevard. Curtis alleges, says he was told to finish the film and stay away from both Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe, and it was only after filming had finished that he had learned of Marilyn's miscarriage. Make of that what you will. In my trashy opinion, I think it is their image only as a Hollywood couple and their professional success that keeps these two, Janet and Tony, together as long as it does. They stick it out until it becomes unbearable for Mm -hmm. both of them. No, that makes sense. Like, didn't we almost have it all? Yeah, you did in the first few years. I think after 56, he's done. He's sleeping with everybody. 
she's not yet sleeping around, but I think there, again, what did he say? You'd be surprised at how common this was in Hollywood marriages. They are together for the image, the perception until neither one of them can handle it. Well, also divorce was very controversial in this era. So, you don't want to ruin your... Yeah. I mean, they, they went into this being told it would be career suicide. It turned out to be false. But, I mean, they can't know whether a divorce would be. But, I mean, they're doing great. By the time it's all collapsing, listen to this. Tony earns an Oscar nomination at the 31st Academy Awards for Best Actor in 1959 for his role as John Joker Jackson in The Defiant Ones. This year, Tony Curtis does lose to David Niven, who wins for separate tables. Two years later, the 33rd Academy Awards, Janet earns an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress in 61 for her role as Marion Crane in Psycho, arguably the role that she is most known for, Spiderweb, and although Janet Lee loses to Shirley Jones... Shirley Jones wins for her work in Elmer Gantry. Janet Lee wins Best Supporting Actress for the Golden Globes that year. Hmm. Right? Oh, God, it's all connected. So they get married 51. We're making it now to about mm, 1959, 1960, which is the beginning of the end, the end of the middle, the end of the end. I'm not really sure, but let's bring it to where it gets so trashy. In 1960 in California, we've heard it before, it's JFK for president time. The Kennedy campaign comes to Hollywood. Remember, JFK is using Peter Lawford and Patricia Kennedy's home, his sister and her husband, actor, on Santa Monica, on the beach for his campaign headquarters. You have the whole hanging out with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr., the Hollywood set. Okay. Holy cats. It goes bad for so many people when Kennedy campaigns in California. This bit is beautifully done. I'm taking this again from Gwen Davis. As Hollywood's young monarchs, the Curtises were the natural choice to entertain visiting royalty. So when John F. Kennedy ran for president and his campaign began... One of the West Coast Glamour Way stations was the Curtis House on Summit Drive. This is the mansion off Benedict Canyon. There were many fundraisers in their sloping, running down to the swimming pool garden. They had frequent dinner parties before the main event. And as I was going to Stanford, a writer, and so I suppose could be thought of as a intellectual, quote-unquote, I was invited. Also present, besides Roz Wyman, a local Democratic councilwoman, was a bright young press agent, Pat Newcomb. Oh, God, it it really does all connect. If you're listening to Done and Done, you know exactly who Pat Newcomb is. Who represented, Pat Newcomb did, the cream de la milk, up to and including Marilyn Monroe. The speaker at one of the fundraisers was Teddy Kennedy, who hadn't yet found his tongue or the tarnished nobility that was to emerge later in life. So as he was fumfering, Councilwoman Wyman said to me, please, can't you write something for Teddy? From that point on in the campaign, this is Gwen Davis, I became one of the Hollywood gang working for JFK, though I had no time to write for him. 
I was still galloping through my courses at Stanford, writing a novel, Someone's in the Kitchen with Dinah, for which Tony Curtis took the photo on the back cover, photo by Bernie Schwartz, reads the credit, Hmm. and whipping down to Los Angeles for great meetings with him on a screen comedy I had in mind for him that he loved as an idea. Still at Stanford, pulled toward my movie star quote-unquote friends, then they seemed to be, I went to meet Janet for a JFK fundraiser in San Francisco. Sammy Davis Jr. was present on that occasion, hanging out in one of the rooms that adjoined the great ballroom at the Fairmont Hotel, where a big lunch was being held. He lay on a couch, head back against folded arms, ruminating on the intersection of entertainment and politics. As a bona fide member of the Rat Pack, he was at the center of the Hollywood push for Kennedy. We had met in Los Angeles at the Curtis's, and when I'd been introduced, I'd asked him if he thought we were related since we were both Jewish and had the same last name. (laughs) He'd been amused by that, and then from then on, when he greeted me, he always called me cuz. (laughs) I sat talking to him that day about how great JFK was, having naturally widened the scope of my reverence to include politicians good-looking and charming enough to be movie stars. He's a fool, Sammy said jarringly. He puts everything he has on the line and is at risk because of women. He's an adolescent when it comes to broads. (laughs) Isn't this just the most fascinating insight? Okay. I didn't ask him for specifics. Immature and unwilling as I was to face realities in my own relationships or lack of them with the opposite sex, I certainly didn't want to know any damning truths about Kennedy, my latest hero. The fundraiser, as it turned out, was the backdrop for a very fraught afternoon. Tony Curtis was calling Janet every half hour to make sure she was going to be on the four o'clock plane. The jealousy that had characterized their courtship She told me he parked across the street from where she lived when they were first dating, waiting for her to come home from dates she had with other men before they became engaged, had taken a darker turn. You think she would have learned it from Howard Hughes? She didn't. Well, there was also his call pretending to be Cary Grant. Right. Okay. Darker turn. Tony gets more stalkery. Like, his jealousy... I can sleep with whoever I want to, but Janet, I need you, little lady. Just of course. To, yeah. Now, that okay. is uh, oddly how these things seem to work in the minds of the partner who wants to sleep with whomever he wants to sleep with. Fuck around. Maybe find out. Mm-hmm. All right. Back to Gwen Davis. After Tony taking a darker turn, along with Sammy, Peter Lawford, and the rest of Kennedy's celebrated supporters, there was, of course, Frank Sinatra. Tony was sure that Janet was having an affair with Frank or was about to. So Janet Lee, this is her, Janet Lee agonizing to Gwen Davis. If he'd only tell me I could stay overnight, I wouldn't even wait for the four o'clock plane. I'd leave at three. Just as she said that, she got another call from him. The cracks in the marriage that were shortly to become fissures were beginning to show. I took it all very personally, as I wanted desperately for them to be what almost no other Hollywood couples were, permanent. I knew I was certain how deeply in love Tony and Janet were with each other. How could they not be? 
if my own parents had not been able to keep their marriage together in spite of how handsome my father seemed and how beautiful my mother was in my eyes, couldn't this magical couple hold it together for my sake at least? Forget about the two baby girls upstairs in the nursery. They had to stay a couple forever. They were Tony and Janet. They had crystal glasses for their parties on a display shelf in their mirrored bar, etched with the names of other celebrated couples they entertained. Billy and Audrey, the Wilders. Audrey and Mel, the Ferrars. Jack and Felicia, the Lemons. How much must that have cost? I could not help thinking about the glasses. What would happen to them if the marriage ended? Who would get custody of the crystal? (laughs) I love this story. Oh, that cracks me up. Who will get custody of the crystal? All right. Upstairs in the nursery was Jamie Lee, for whom I was allowed to babysit, a skill I had carried with me happily since high school. She looked at me with what appeared to be a prematurely skeptical look in her two-year-old steel-blue eyes, as if she already knew, having been set aside, except for movie magazine stories where she would be paraded not to trust, not to believe in anyone. When she would grow up with her wonderful smile, it would turn down at the corners as if there were a secret subtext that even seeming happiness had disappointment in it. Her older sister Kelly was also there, dispassionate at four. Downstairs in the game room was a different sort of nursery. Tony had his blackboard and all he had to do, he was sure to become Billy Wilder, was to put chalk to it without squeaking. (laughs) Tony Curtis. I was a writer. Comedy at the time was my forte, and I had come up with that good comic idea for a screenplay for Tony. Every weekend, I would barrel down from Stanford in the yellow Plymouth convertible that my agency, MCA, had sold me. That's another story. For story conferences with Tony. Was it any wonder my peers in the English department hated me? Said my colleague in the graduate English department, Tom Arp, you threaten them. You represent real life. Most of the people in academia are here because they're trying to avoid it. That being real life. Real life Hollywood, as as Betty Davis might have said, how very amusing. (laughs) That's a little bit of this, but I do want to add this particular part just about the general audacity of Tony Curtis. During one school vacation, when I was visiting my parents in New York, Tony and Janet were there. Tony had come to appear as the mystery guest on the popular TV game show, What's My Line? Hmm. This is January 9th, 1955, when this happens. Okay. All right, What's My Line? Dorothy Kilgallen. Sure. Uh, The Surfs. Guys, so much fun. Okay, I love that show. What's My Line? The Apotheosis of Celebrity. In a regal townhouse in New York that same evening, a well-known stockbroker was giving a party for them, to which I was invited. It was a particularly tasteful and chic affair, and at one point, Tony stood by the window and gazed northward in the direction of the Bronx. My father was a tailor up there, he told me, the shining blue eyes misting over. If he only could have lived to see this, 
I was so caught in a spell I didn't even allow myself he might be grandstanding. What Tony Curtis wanted to be was Cary Grant, whom he had impersonated in Some Like It Hot. I joined with Tony in thinking that might be possible, as he was almost as handsome and cleverer than anyone imagined, at least for an actor. The screenplay I was writing for him was tailored to his comic gifts and, had it been made, might have reinforced that could-have-been image. But instead, Tony Curtis elected to do Terrace Bulba, a plotting costume epic with Yul Brenner, and, oh well, alas, Christine Kaufman, for whom Tony was to leave Janet. Tars Bulba, 1962, the filming of. Let me let you know about Christine Kaufman. She is 17 years old. Tony is not Mm. 17 years old. Gotcha. Tony's been married for a decade to Hollywood's hottest star with two girls at home. Christine Kaufman, 17. Tony, oh, I'm definitely not sleeping with Christine Kaufman. Janet... You're out of your mind. This is the breaking point for Janet. Janet's done and over with all of it. And Janet decides now, I think it's finally time, knowing my marriage is over and everything but the paperwork, finally has her affair with good family friend Frank Sinatra during the filming of The Manchurian Candidate. I mean, they've done all that work together for the campaign. Oh, sure. And who doesn't Frank Sinatra get with? It's perfectly Frank. So Janet, after Psycho, returns from an absence to the screen two years later. Janet Lee is going to come back to be in The Manchurian Candidate, 1962. The Manchurian Candidate is a thriller film. Janet Lee plays the role of Frank Sinatra's girlfriend, Frank Sinatra in the film is a brainwashed former prisoner of war who's being groomed to become an assassin. Lawrence Harvey and Angela Lansbury Mm -hmm. also star with Frank Sinatra. To be honest, Janet Leigh, her role is not crucial to any of the development in the film at all, but she's there just the same. And Tony Curtis, who thought that Janet Leigh and Frank Sinatra had been sleeping around for years anyway, now is proved right. But he's with the teenager, 17-year-old Christine Kaufman. Sure. So nobody's listening to Tony Curtis. The two will divorce Tony and Janet in 1962. Goodbye. Breaking up is hard to do. But again, the relationship had been dead for so, so long, the divorce was just the final bit. But who did get the crystal? That's a good question. I do not have that answer. Janet Lee. And kind of a badass move, wastes no time in remarrying again. One day after her divorce from Tony Curtis is done, Janet Lee will marry stockbroker Robert Brandt. And Janet and Robert Brandt remain married through the rest of her life, the next 42 years. Wow. Incredible. Janet Lee will say there's a difference between retiring from a profession and retiring from life. I chose not to do the latter. So when Janet does sort of retire from acting, she really becomes involved in a lot of philanthropy. Right. I, that's what I recall growing up is she was, yeah, she was very, very active with causes. Oh, absolutely. Mm. She keeps herself really occupied, doing good, coming into herself. Okay, I'm, you know, movie star is one thing, but I want to be a more authentic human here. I've found 
my person, my Robert, and I'm happily married, and how can I best support my kids and get them into, right, things they want to do. Like, well, and she has a happy ending here. They, I mean, they were all so young when they got into acting. You're a different person at 30 than you are at 20. Oh, and, yeah. Right, like, been there, done that. Well, and I they suppose. would have been getting divorced in their early 30s. Can mm-hmm. you imagine? I mean, me at 33, unleashed, whole new world, mm-hmm. right? Janet, good on her. Happy, happy, happy ending. Janet Lee passes away October the 3rd in the year 2004 at the age of 77 with her daughters and her husband by her side. Love Janet Lee. Tony Curtis, what happens to him? He's no stranger in the marriage department. Old Tony Curtis is going to marry five more times. All two younger women first up. Year after the divorce, 1963, to then his... 18-year-old former co-star Christine Kaufman, who swore he wasn't having an affair with. They marry in 63. They stay together about five years, busting up in 1968. I'm going to go back to Gwen Davis here to get us out of this trashy divorce. After Tony's divorce from Christine, he married a number of ladies I didn't know well enough to comment about, and maybe he didn't either. His last and final marriage was to a blonde bombshell named Joyce Vanderberg, a little over half Jamie's age. Jamie was permitted to be the official photographer. He allowed his daughter to photograph him in the bathroom before he put on his rug, a white toupee that had caused Jamie to rechristen him Zoltan, the role Marlon Brando played as Superman's father. This piece was published upon the passing of Tony Curtis, so this sentence is going to set this in play. I think now, Gwen Davis continues, in this unkind autumn, what a loss his was, this surprisingly clever man who could not rise above his own overblown ego. I remember the evening in 1998 when my dear friend Jamie, a great lady I considered her to be, actress, mother, author, humanitarian, handholder, hosted a party at Spago for my last published novel, West of Paradise. There, the old Tony, with his curly-haired white Zoltan toupee, was standing at the bar. Tony Curtis says to Gwen Davis, you have her for a friend, you don't need anybody else, right? Talking about Jamie Lee. Absolutely right, I agreed. So you see, I said afterward to Jamie Lee, whatever else went before, he really gets you. He appreciates who and what you are, said Jamie with that downturned smile. He's so full of shit. I mean, I don't mean to laugh because clearly a lot of pain there. And yet Jamie Lee gets her dad. He's so full of shit. Don't don't pay attention yeah, don't to what he says. Don't fall for his shit, yeah. Again, more marriages for Tony Curtis, but his career after divorcing Janet Lee never quite recovers. Tony will continue to act, but the days for him landing major movie star roles are long gone. And Gwen Davis, oh God, what did she write? He could never quite rise above his overblown ego. I'm going to leave this with, you fucked around and found out, Tony Curtis. This is a quote from him about Janet. I want you to put on your your sad, get your Kleenex out for old Tony Curtis. For a while, we were Hollywood's golden couple. I was very dedicated and devoted to Janet and on top of my trade, but 
In her eye, that goldenness started to wear off. I realized whatever I was, I wasn't enough for Janet. That hurt me a lot and broke my heart. Tony Curtis, what a dude. He passes away September 29th, 2010. Hmm. Rap. It's the end of my story. <laughs> I honestly didn't realize. I, I thought you were going to tell me that he had died in the 80s or something. I No, 2010. Mm, okay. I do actually have something really fun. I'm going to pull it out. It's been sitting by my desk for the longest time. Y'all. I have this most magnificent magazine, Life Magazine, from June 25th, 1951, with Janet Lee on the cover. June 25th, they just got married. 20 days before, she's the cover girl of Life. Janet Lee, a marriage and new career. This 20 cent piece, I'm going to go in and read it because it is kind of interesting. It's just so incredible. A new life begins for Janet Lee. Uh, she's 23 at the time. Uh, her all-American face had led MGM and RKO, the two studios who've divided her services. Oh, she's the biggest of the Little Women stars, co-starred with Lassie in Hills of Home. She was a ballerina disguised as a nun in Red Danube. Uh, they do talk about her marriage to the band leader, but that's the only one. This month, at last, things began to look up for Janet. Her second marriage was front page news when she sneaked off to Greenwich, Connecticut, explaining that it's such a romantic spot to exchange rings and vows with the 26-year-old Tony Curtis, smooth-faced, wavy-haired young movie actor who is the current idol of the younger set. The wedding went off smoothly enough, although the best man, comedian Jerry Lewis, arrived an hour late. He more than made up for that by his chivalrous attentions to the bride. This is above. This is Jerry Lewis kissing the new bride, which if I was Tony Curtis, I don't think I'd... Looks like she's trying hard to escape. She's really trying to escape is, yeah, what it looks like. That does not look like a He's consensual... holding a cigarette in his hand, so she could be like, please oh don't God. burn me. But I mean, she's like... He's, she's on her knees. Her, that's a weird picture. Isn't it a weird picture? That picture screams consent was not gained. Consent was not. Yeah, you're you're right on that. There are a number of pictures here. Phil Silvers was there. Rugters Nielsen. Oh, Mel Torme was there. Look of love by the couple exchanged. The ceremony was performed by a judge and. Jerry Lee's wife was the matron of honor. Hmm. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I love these old life magazines when you can, I don't know, June 1951. We all know how this story goes down. I've seen this film before and I didn't like the ending, but wow. When we can get you on the cover of Life Mag. I've been waiting on that one for a long time. No, that seems like an extremely, in the end, volatile marriage. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into that one. I have wanted to do that bonus trashy divorce for so very long. Jamie Lee Curtis really does have a cute, cute, cute dog. Mm-hmm. This is a true story. Little floofer. Love it. Y'all. Oh, do I do trash cans for that? I don't know how many trash cans there are. I think most of them go to Tony Curtis and his overinflated. Yeah, yeah. I have... Trash cans all disguised as Cary Grant for Tony Curtis. They're all made of crystal. Filled with Jennifer's. Names of other... Who gets custody of the crystal? Mm. 
<laughs> what a great story. Thanks again, everybody, for your time and listening today. We can't tell you how much we appreciate you. Stacy. you're going to be bringing us our second bonus divorce of May. Mm-hmm. Yes, I will. That's coming for you on May 25th. Not next week, week after. So awesome times, good times here at TDHQ. Until we meet again, keep those hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy, friends. Big love, everybody. Don't let Jerry Lewis, like, do anything. Yeah. Open a restaurant. Don't do it. Petty, petty men. Mm. Big love, everybody. Have a fantastic weekend. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.